Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvaroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Adam Bandelli returns to the show, and Adam talks with Susan about his struggles with mental health, his battle with addiction, and how it's put him on a mission to change leadership forever. We at Elite High Performance specialize in building high-impact leaders who turn their teams into high, happy high performers that achieve their goals. And a prime example is our client, MIQ, who's increased their revenue by 35% year over year, has an 83-employee engagement when the global average is 21%, and has reduced turnover by 28%. These are some game-changing savings, and especially while quiet quitting is the thing, employee engagement has never been more important. And can you afford to leave this revenue productivity on the table and afford to lose your best employees If you can't, head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com for the best research-backed high-performance leadership strategies that will build your leadership capabilities. And feel free to reach out to us. You can send me an email, rob at EliteHighPerformance.com, and we're happy to answer any of your questions as well. So with that all being said, here is the interview with Adam Bandelli and Susan Hobson. Welcome back to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm your host, flying a bit solo today. Susan Hobson, our our friend Rob Kalorowski, is uh, banking some recovery, doubling down on his recovery as per his team's orders. So we are keeping him outside of the studio, um, but that's okay. We've got one of our favorite guests coming back in here today. For the hat trick. This is our third time, Adam. I can hardly (laughs) wait to get deep on this conversation that we got coming for y'all today. But first of all, I just want to introduce Adam Bendelli. He is the founder, right, of Bendelli Associates, as the name obviously infers. And he's doing some amazing work in the world, in and around this whole concept of relational intelligence. He actually just launched his book in the spring, right, buddy? Yeah. yeah. I know we'll we'll get deeply into talking a little bit about some of that today. But uh, how are you? First and foremost, welcome back. Yeah, I'm doing well. So good to be back with you. We missed you last time when Rob and I met in March. Um, but we had a wonderful conversation and kind of primes your audience for what relational intelligence is. Um, and since then, we've done um, a ton of work. The book came out on June 23rd, so your listeners can get it today, Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble. Um, but it's been a great journey. We started this journey. I mean, I started, we'll talk about it in a little bit, started this almost 20 years ago around studying relational intelligence and how it grew out of my interest in EQ. Right. Um, but the last year, we've put a whole campaign around what this topic is and how it's related to the great resignation and how it's related to managing leaders and mentoring people. And so we have over 30 articles we've written um, since January about relational intelligence and a number of different business related topics. So that's been really fun to kind of bring it to life from different areas. Um, Our firm is updating our website and everything is changing around this idea. So it's kind of the primary piece of work that we do um, because I'm a firm believer that relationships are everything. And so leaders can help other people through that. 
preach on it. That's why we're so aligned. That's why you're back for the hat trick, right? Because I think of relational intelligence as leadership 2.0. It's like kind of synonymous with what we're on a mission here at uh, Team Elite towards. And so I know we talked a lot about relational intelligence last time, but I just want to make sure just in case any of our listeners didn't catch the last episode, do you want to just give us a quick breakdown on what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So relational intelligence is the ability to successfully connect with people and build strong, long lasting relationships. And this idea originated with my love of emotional intelligence back in the 90s. So I read Daniel Goleman's book, became fascinated with it. And I spent the next 10 years of my educational career in route to getting my PhD, really dissecting EQ. And what I found in my master's thesis was that EQ can be used for positive or negative purposes. So you can use emotions to inspire and engage and motivate people, or you can use emotions to instill fear or intimidation or lead like a Machiavellian or narcissistic leader. Um, And so based on finding that, I said, okay, is there a skill set or a number of behaviors that leaders can use to really build life-changing dynamic relationships with their people? Mm -hmm. Um, My dissertation focused on relational intelligence. I didn't call it that at the time. I called it a weird psychobabble term. Um, But if you Google my name, you can see the dissertation will come up in one of the list of things. So, um, but it's really about how do you build successful relationships long-term? And so the Bandelli relational intelligence model has five components that lead to that. Um, Those things include establishing rapport. And Mm -hmm. that's really the ability to use energy to create an initial positive connection with another person. So things like eye contact, body language, verbals and nonverbals. The second skill is understanding others. And this is the ability to be intentional about putting in the time and energy needed to get to know other people. Mm -hmm. So things like EQ and understanding your emotions is important. Mm -hmm. Active listening becomes really critical. Showing up as a curious and inquisitive leader and empathy and compassion. So that makes up the second skill. Mm -hmm. Um, Embracing individual differences. That's our diversity and inclusion bucket. That's the ability to acknowledge and accept that everyone comes from different authentic backgrounds and experiences. Mm -hmm. And so we're big proponents here about psychological safety people being authentic and bringing their true selves to work and how that can really lead to diversity of thought. So that's the third skill. Um, The fourth skill we'll get into today in terms of my own personal journey, but that's developing trust. This Uh is the most important skill for people to master. And we define it, people define it in different ways, but it's the ability to be vulnerable and risk being exposed to the actions or behaviors of others. So great relationally intelligent leaders create cultures where people can be themselves and share vulnerability in terms to build great relationships. And then the fifth and final skill, Susan, this is cultivating influence. And influence can be many different things to many leaders. We define it here as the ability to have a positive and meaningful impact on the lives of others. So this focuses on servant leadership, putting people in culture first, mentoring, coaching, feedback, all the things that great leaders do to build talent around them falls under the cultivating influence skill. So those are the five skills in the framework. The book looks into all those areas. So the first half of the book, there's a chapter on each of those skills where I also provide the reader with some practical tools that they can apply immediately, like working on eye contact or working on strengthening their EQ. And then the second half of the book, which is really interesting and ties into my own personal journey as a person and as a leadership advisor, are the applications of relational intelligence to our family relationships, our friendships, our professional relationships, and then our romantic relationships and marriage. So it kind of dissects it from those different angles. I have a question for you. Yeah. Why aren't they teaching this in school? 
definitely not teaching it in business school to leaders. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why in 2022 is it such a blind spot that we actually need to have relational skills yeah, yeah. to be effective in this leadership yeah. space? Like, what is the blind spot all about? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think emotional intelligence has become an umbrella term over the last 20 years, 30 years, really, since Goldman wrote his I book. No, it's and crazy. So 30 everything. years it's been around. Yeah. So everything's right? underneath that. And I think... Um, EQ is great to, like, we define EQ as understanding your emotions, the emotions of others, and how to manage emotions effectively. That's one piece of the puzzle. To build great relationships, you have to be intentional. You have to be authentic. And a lot of people, they don't, even in the schools, we can talk about elementary schools and kids learning these skills like empathy at an early age, but you look at even university or graduate school, mm-hmm. I don't think leaders are prepared for the social and relational aspects of what it means to be a leader. We're taught about being strategic and we're taught about being innovative. And we're talking about a lot of the subject matter expertise that makes yeah. leaders great. But the higher, and in my experience in the work we do at our firm, the higher you go in an organization, the more important it becomes to influence with that authority, to collaborate with others. And so relationships are the main capital and that you need to have to do that. So, yeah, I think it's a huge miss. I mean, I this, this is my purpose and calling. We'll get into that in a moment with my background. But like I'm, I'm trying to shift the way leaders think across business to make relationships a priority and to talk about that. And that's been a big focus for all the articles and all the work we've done the last year. So tell us a little bit more about that mission and why you're so personally passionate yeah. about this work getting into big business and making sure that leaders know that this needs to be a requisite aspect of their leadership development and training, not just for themselves, right? But for their teams. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. So I think for me, my journey really started and you got the the shoes behind me, the sports background, but I've been always fascinated by one question. What makes great leaders great? Um, And my own journey has really been about being around great mentors and people who have coached and developed me. Um, And then that's translated into the relationships I have with my clients. When I finished my doctoral work and started my career, I joined a global management consulting firm. And at that point in time, I was 25, 26. I had no idea about how to be a leadership advisor or manager. Right. Yeah. Um, But I took took my relational intelligence framework and I was intentional, authentic in building relationships with my colleagues. Um, And it went from learning about their personal lives and their kids and what they do outside of work and really just showing up as curious and inquisitive and wanting to learn. Um, And I saw a tremendous impact in terms of the relationships I built with them. And that led to colleagues bringing me into client work. And then as I started to build out my client portfolio, I applied the same five skills to my relationships with my clients. And I saw them transform individually. I saw their people transform as we built out talent development programs and coaching programs. Um, And many of my clients have had for two decades. And so it's a testament to putting in the time and genuinely caring about people. And I'll tell my clients, and I firmly believe this, um, this is not a job for me. This is a calling to really help leaders. I believe I've been called to help leaders bring out their authentic selves and really reach their full potential. Um, and to do that, you really have to do a lot of unpacking on yourself. And I can only say that because I've spent the last 20 years on my personal side of my life, really exploring my own wellness and emotional health and mental health. And so all the things that kind of we sometimes will put on the back burner or it's not good to talk about in business. Mm-hmm. I think leaders need to do that hard work of self-exploration, self-discovery in order to get to a point where they can create environments where their people can do the same. 
That's interesting for me, um, doing this work for 15 years, I've really calibrated how it, it, it seems like it takes a brick wall or a glass ceiling for a leader to come to the table and do that deeper work. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why does pain need to be the catalyst to our untapped hidden potential? Yeah. What's up with that? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if it's pain or I don't know if it's the burning platform to change. So I've had this existential conversation with a number of my clients the last year. Can people really change? And I think until there is that pain moment, or you talk about, you know, hitting rock bottom until a leader has the reason to change. I don't think most people will. And even outside of leadership, just people in general, until there's a burning platform or a reason for you to change, most people will kind of do what they've normally done. And so the leaders that I've worked with that have made the most changes or progress in their lives had a, um, you know, had a moment where they had to reflect and either they were going to be taken out of their role or potentially even fired or something was going to happen where they needed to stop and pause and say, okay, the way that I'm behaving, the way that I'm engaging now is not going to get me to where I need to go. It may have gotten me to this point, but it's not going to get me where my ambitions or my goals might be. Yeah. It just seems like we get out the gates, we get on our career tracks, we get promoted to leadership, right? And it only accelerates the more people you're responsible for. And I think that's the the nature of the beast. At that point, you got to run mostly on your autopilot, right? Because you're just doing so much and you have so much responsibility. Yeah. But um, yeah, I do think that there, it's interesting to me because the only way I can usually get my leaders to want to talk about their emotions is when they're in some sort of a tailspin or a crisis, right? Or like I said, like a brick wall in terms of some sort of disruptive emotional state that has their performance tanking, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about this a little bit, because I know this is why you're so passionate about doing this work with leaders. Why why is it that it takes our mental health, especially high achieving leaders, our mental health to be the thing that calls us to this table known as EQ? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for relationally intelligent leaders to really build the cultures that they need to, that self journey has to happen. And so for me and my own personal journey, um, when I was in graduate school, around the same time, it's really funny that I started to do the research for relational intelligence. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And it started, as I think most mental health journeys start, um, I'm a type A personality, goal-oriented. Um, for the first time in my life, I just started to feel low energy, um, started to have depressive symptoms. And for someone who always has been just dusted off your shirt and kind of pull your bootstraps up, that was really paralyzing and scary to not be able to get out of bed and not be able to do the things that I was passionate about. Um, And like most depressive episodes that people experience, it can last anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, depending on what you do to help yourself to get out of that kind of funk. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple months after that passed, I started engaging in a lot of behaviors that were extreme on the other end. So get, engaging in manic behavior. Um, I slept like two hours a night for two or three months, working 16, 17 hour days, working out three, four hours a day, just doing a lot on the other extreme end of it. Um, and then a couple months after that, I had another severe depressive episode where I was suicidal. Um, and so I went to a psychiatrist for the first time. Um, I talk about in the book, Bedside Manner, and that a lot of physicians don't have that. And I remember sitting down with the psychiatrist. I was with my father at the time. And basically, he 
had me speak for two minutes and then just stopped me and said, you have bipolar disorder, take these three medications and see me in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a 24 year old who was getting his doctoral degree in psychology, I couldn't fathom that I would have a psychological disorder. And so I outright rejected the diagnosis. I told him he was wrong. This was just a nervous breakdown or, you know, the stress of grad school. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I lived the next eight or nine years of my life in complete denial of having bipolar, Uh, was not in therapy, was not taking medication consistently. Um, And it led to a number of different, I mean, with bipolar in general, um, if you're not medicating, you're not in therapy, you live in the extremes, the highs and the lows. And so there were periods of time where, um, when I was manic, it started with healthy behaviors. Um, instead of running like two or three miles a day, I started running marathons. Um, so it'd be going to go out on a weekend and run 18 miles. That was normal to me. And, you know, there's a lot of people that do marathons and stuff like that. So there's nothing against that, but in my own life, it was extreme working 70 hours a week. It was running marathons. It was spending a lot. Um, and then, you know, that led to some negative behaviors, with a substance abuse addiction and other things that are often associated. If you have a mental health disorder, it usually leads to substance addiction. If you're not in the help or getting the help that you need. Right. Um, and self-medicate. So, yeah. The self-medication piece. And so um, that became a very dark period in my life where I almost lost my life to an overdose. Um, and then, you know, checked myself into a rehab the next day. And for me, that was really the beginning of unlocking for myself, my own journey, Uh, When I was in rehab, I accepted that I had bipolar. Um, And then it became, how do I get all the knowledge and information I can to know how I can manage my disease? Because everyone Mm. who has depression or anxiety or bipolar, your journey and your story is unique. And so I can't tell you, Susan, if you have bipolar, how to deal with it because you have your own personality, which is on top of that. You have your own habits and behaviors, which is another layer on top of that. So Mm -hmm. you have to figure out what are the basics of any disorder you're given mental health wise. And then you have to figure out how are you going to tackle that in your own life so Mm -hmm. that you can lead the most balanced life that you can. Why do you think it took you eight or nine years to accept the reality of that diagnosis? I think a lot of it had to do with the um, first time I sat down with a psychiatrist. I didn't know anything better. Um, I think it was the bedside manner. There was just very cold and aggressive the way that this person, you know, told me that I was diagnosed mm-hmm. um, at the time. There's still a huge stigma around mental health and particularly bipolar of all the mental health disorders, I think, in 2022. But if you go back to 2005, 2006, I mean, that it almost sounded like a cancer sentence or a life ah, sentence yeah. like that. And so right. um, I my ego, my pride, I couldn't accept that I had a flaw or that I had a weakness. So what I felt was a flaw or weakness at the time. Mm-hmm. I think I've come now 20 years later to really embrace that aspect of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've learned to harness that, you know, there are times in the day, usually earlier in the day where I have a lot more energy. Um, Mm -hmm. I've written two books in two years because I've channeled that energy to doing writing and doing productive things in the morning. Um, And so that that's, that's been for me, but when you're first diagnosed, um, how I'm a big proponent, Susan, one of our our, uh, firms, I call them the Bandeliaisms. Yeah. What you say to your people, it's how you say it. And so I think how that message was delivered to me was not in a good way. Um, And I think for most of your listeners who have mental health challenges or mental health disorders, um, getting around a really good care team, and that Mm -hmm. should include a psychiatrist and a therapist and family or social support, um, those are important. And so I just had a bad psychiatrist for my first sit down. Um, Had I had a psychiatrist who was more empathetic or could understand the context of the situation that I was dealing with as a patient, Mm -hmm. uh, I could have avoided those eight or nine years of denial and the substance abuse addiction. 
I totally resonate with your story. I don't know if you know anything about my story, but that's basically how I came to this mission. Like when I was, you know, recruited to play hockey in the States, I went away at 14, left my friends, my family. It was very stressful, right? Because I was then thrust into this like high performance, intense environment. And I didn't, I was 14. I didn't have the freaking strategies or tools or resources. And that first year away, I got diagnosed with the life-threatening disease, Crohn's disease, which is like a stress disease. Basically we know now we didn't know then, but it's the suppress, repress, deny yeah, yeah. You yeah. do as perfectionists, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, I got to get on the ice. I don't have time for my emotions. <laughs> Was yeah. the narrative, right? Yep, yep. Um, and so I always joke because it like it took me the chokehold to the mat, right? Yeah. To be like, yeah. okay, yeah. I have a life threatening yeah. disease. I guess I got to learn about my stress and my emotions and all of that. But yeah. I was still so immature. So like the reality is I just wanted to get back on the ice (laughs) and take, and I would, I was, I would take shortcuts and everything else, but I just didn't have the right support systems. Right. And I was trying to fake like I was all good. And then when I got to university, when I got to Princeton and it was again, like big fish to in small pond to little minnow in the ocean is how I felt. Yeah. yeah. Um, And my, my dad passed away of terminal cancer my freshman year. Um, my hockey coach sent me down to the, the Makosh, like mental health services center. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. 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 And I was like, what the heck is this? You know, like, I don't have time for this again. I got to get back to school and studying. And I had that same experience where the yeah. therapist actually heard my story and started crying, wow. which is great. Right. But freaked me the heck out. Like I was <laughs> not what I needed. I went running so fast out of that health services center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might've given myself whiplash. Right. But yeah. now it's interesting because those little brick wall moments that I had, it was inching me closer and closer into this whole conversation in and around how I just couldn't avoid my emotions. I had yeah. to learn how yeah. to work with them. And now it's so funny. Like when we'll work with athletes, they're the same, same type of expression when we even want to go there. And we have to explain like emotions are like, there's no more powerful performance driver than your emotions. They're driving you up or they're driving you down. If you don't know what they're trying to communicate to you, you are definitely not at the helm in your performance. So I'm grateful for that brick wall, right? Because what a freaking game-changing opportunity once I actually came to the table and started doing that deeper work. That's right. It was like, again, it it, it awakened me to my untapped hidden potential. And so what did all of this teach you? Going through nine years of that avoidance pattern, right? And then landing in a substance addiction, which is such a common story, right? In terms of... Because when you hear what you're really talking about, it's the stigma, it's the shame. Yeah. We we believe we need we're high performers. We need to be tough, like all these things <laughs> buried in both of our freaking stories, right? Like emotional stoicism. Yep. <laughs> so what did that teach you? I'm obviously very passionate about this too, right? Like what did this, what did all of this teach you and inspire you? And how does that pertain to the mission that you're on right now? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So I think there are three things that I learned from it. Um, if you caught me in my mid twenties, I was an arrogant kid that, you know, got a PhD at 24, um, was working at a global management consulting firm in a job that I shouldn't have, I didn't deserve to be. Most of my colleagues were 20 years older than me. Um, and so there came a great deal of pride and arrogance that I could do anything I wanted to do as long as right. I could work to it. Um, and so right off the bat, having a mental health disorder that was crippling 
some days I couldn't get out of bed. And then leading to a substance abuse addiction. I remember in college saying, oh, my friends who would smoke or do drugs, like, you know, they're crazy for doing that. Only, you know, idiots do that. And then 10 years later, I'm struggling with that. Um, So it taught me a great deal of humility. I remember sitting in rehab um, and one of the folks who was in my group was a transgender woman. Mm -hmm. And I learned more from her about empathy and communication and showing care towards people than I did in any of my classes on EQ in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way she embraced me. And there were days where I was crying because I thought my career was over. I ended up getting divorced because of the addiction. So there were things that I thought my life was coming to an end. And this woman really just helped me work through that as well as some of the other people who were in the rehab. So for me, humility was the first and foremost thing that I learned that at any point in time, whatever you have can be taken away in an instant. Mm-hmm. And so having gratitude for where you are and knowing that um, everything you have is, is, is a blessing to, for me to not die of an overdose, that was a blessing. So every moment that I have breathing now is, is extra time that I have to make the most of. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the first thing. I think the second thing, and this really has happened for me the last couple of years, um, authenticity for leaders is such a critical skill because you should be able to bring your entire self to work. Um, And for me to not only acknowledge my mental health, but to now be an advocate, it's one of the primary drivers of our firm, mental health awareness. Um, I want to crush the stigma that's associated with it in business. I think in sports now, you're seeing it. people like Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, a number of PGA and LPGA golfers have come out and talked about depression or things like that as well. Um, So it's in the media more, it's more accepted now in sports, but I don't think it is in business. I think CEOs and senior executives either have their own mental health issues or they have people in their family that do. And it is viewed as a sign of weakness, though. Mm. Um, and I've come to realize in my own journey that it's not, it can actually be your greatest asset. I joke around with my friends, it's my superhero power, you know, to have that energy and that, you know, passion. I agree. Um, I, so I authenticity totally would be the second piece. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third piece, and which is something I've learned now in my 40s that I didn't know in my 20s, is that you're responsible for your mental and emotional well being. Um, whatever that means, if you have a, a mental health disorder, if you don't, you're responsible as an adult to get the help and the support that you need when you're struggling, whether that's at work or outside of work or both, because everything is now intermixed since COVID. Um, and so those would be the three things, humility, authenticity, and then you have to take ownership for what takes place in your life. Amen. Speak on it. That That's where leadership begins, right? Self-responsibility. That's right. That's right. So here we are. We're on a mission. You said one of the major pillars in the leadership development work that you do um, is mental health. And so just walk us through, what does that look like? I, I know we've got a lot of listeners out there yeah. and I, I'll speak from my clients, you know, that I'm working with, especially over the last two years where yeah. it's become impossible to ignore your people's mental health. In my humble opinion, if you are, your head is way buried in that sand. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but walk us through that a little bit, right? Like in terms of this pillar and the work that you're doing in and around mental health for leaders. Yeah. So it's all tied back to relational intelligence. I think for us, um, you look at the two skills of relational intelligence, the second skill, understanding others, which again is being intentional about getting to know your people mm-hmm. and then embracing individual differences, which is really the DEI bucket about creating the psychological safety so people can bring them true selves to work and build inclusive cultures. Mm-hmm. So we tie it directly to the coaching work that we do. Um, I'll walk leaders through like, what are the things that you need to do to understand your people? 
Mm-hmm. Well, first off, you have to have strong EQ, understand your emotions, the emotions of the people. You have to be a good active listener. Uh, I just wrote an article a month or so ago about the relationally intelligent introvert. And so introverts are told most of their lives that they're second fiddle to extroverts. And what our research has actually shown are introverts are more empathetic. They're more active, better listeners. Mm-hmm. They're more able to put themselves in other people's shoes. And so a lot of skills that extroverts don't possess, introverts do, and it makes them great relationally intelligent leaders. Totally um, so we'll help that. leaders with the active listening piece. But then also there's the curious and inquisitive side. Um, a lot of our coaching work around this is, um, are you asking questions with a genuine interest in wanting to know about your people? And this is where the mental health piece comes in. If I'm learning about you as an employee, Susan, I should, as your leader, as your manager, want to know about the things that make you who you are today. Um, and so it's about creating the psychological safety where you can feel comfortable sharing those things. Um, I was going back and forth with one of my colleagues this week. We were talking about it with a client. Um, what if people don't want to share their mental health? What if they don't want to talk about it? And I, and I told them, I was like, that, that's completely up to each person. They have the right to share what they want to share or not. But the responsibility for you as a leader is to, again, extend the vulnerability and share with your people that it's okay to talk about it, whether you have it in your life or not. Um, and again, to develop trust with people, vulnerability is a key piece that I think a lot of leaders struggle with. Um, it's okay to be vulnerable. And as a leader, it's okay to model that so that your people will do the same. Um, and if that's done, then it creates the environment where if someone wants to talk about it, they feel comfortable that they can, and they feel comfortable they'll be accepted and valued despite whatever they may feel about an issue that they have. Um, and so that's how it's tied into relational intelligence. Um, we do training on our framework and model. We have a two-day uh, offsite experience called the Relational Intelligence Experience, where we'll take people through the five skills. And we have exercises around all the different behaviors. But one of those exercises um, under our Understanding Others bucket is a thing we call moments that matter. Uh-huh. So we'll ask leaders, share, we'll break them into groups of eight or 10 people if you're in a group of like 40 or 50 small kind of intimate groups. Right. And the way that we set up the, the exercises and we say, we want you to share a success story or something that really gave you a sense of accomplishment and a relationship that played a role in that situation. Mm-hmm. And then we want you to think about a adversity or challenge or setback that you faced and a relationship that played a role in that. And so we'll kind of give the instructions. And then my colleagues and I who are facilitating, we'll share from our own lives And so I will talk with the audience about my mental health journey, what we've talked about today and addiction. And so we kind of give an example and set the stage of how deep they can go or they want if they want to go. Um, And then you send them into their groups for this 45 minute to hour exercise. And we've gotten feedback over the last year from doing this many times with our clients that that's one of the transformational parts of the two day. People Mm -hmm. learn stories about each other. They have that vulnerability. They share things that they haven't shared before. And it just strengthens the relationships in the room. People walk away from our relational intelligence experience feeling closely more bonded to their colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it impacts how they show up as a leader back in their day-to-day jobs. I love this. I think some of the most inspirational adaptations that I'm seeing right now based on, you know, all this need to pivot during the pandemic are some of the tech companies I'm working with. They're not, they haven't mandated their people back to the office. They're just mm-hmm. having these four, you know, um, I think they're called significant moments or something like that in terms of they bring everybody together in one space somewhere in the world. Cool. And they just basically work on that. Right. It's like not even about business. It's just about bringing people together so that they can have 
those meaningful touch points with one another, because then when they go back to the remote work, right? Like it just serves them so much because it deepens that rapport. Yeah. 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 It's so great. And we just did a huge offsite for one of our financial services clients and it was a two day offsite. And what we built it in was the first day they really spent a good chunk of time on this moments that matter type of exercise and really getting yeah. to each other. And then we tied it on day two back to their work is how is your purpose as a leader and what is your brand? How does that show up in the work that you do? And so you mm-hmm. take the lessons learned, the things that shape them, and then you tie it into what's my purpose for doing what I do? What's my purpose for being here? And how does that tie into my leadership brand and how I want my people to know about me? How often do the leaders know what the purpose is when you ask them just out of curiosity? Yeah, cause... so we, we prime them with a cut. We, we'll talk through what that is. And we kind of, you know, we build a lot on that first day. So having to share the experiences that shaped you, um, you kind of know, like for me, for example, you know, the mental health yeah. piece shaped me who I am. And so that's that's tied to my purpose and my calling and what I do. And so kind of giving people that framework to say, okay, your life events contribute to who you are today. It kind of sets them up to say, okay, what? how does that show up for me at work? Mm-hmm. Um, and then go the step further. What's the brand that I want to be known for? Um, you know, do I want to be known as a visionary? Do I want to be known as a collaborator? Do I want to be known as an innovator? Um, that's the thread that I think a lot of trainings misses. You don't take folks on what's the journey that got you here? What's the so what about that? Mm-hmm. And then how does that lead to how you want to be viewed going forward? And so for the clients that we took that through a couple of weeks ago, it was fascinating to see them walk away from that offsite with more clarity on how they want to show up as a leader, how they want to impact their people and what that looks like going forward. I love that. Honestly, it's that it's my favorite aspect of the work is running our clients through the hero's journey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Because yeah. it's just, you, you can tell everything about somebody based on that hero's journey, right? Like who they are why they experienced what they did, what that informed, right? Or inspired in terms of something that they're passionate about. And you can also just see like what they're made of, (laughs) right? In terms of that sweet spot of skills and talents and strengths and attributes and all that fun stuff. And so I I love that. The place I want to make sure I go with you while I have you in studio, Adam, I couldn't believe, I think it was maybe Adam Grant had this on one of his posts, but I just read a stat last week that 80 82% of our leaders are burnt out right now. Like the highest it's ever been, which kind of to me is like, oh, a little bit, a little bit frustrating because we've been saying on the show, Rob and I, as you know, since we started at that, the start of the pandemic, right? It's like this adversity really is an opportunity for growth, collective growth, because it's It's showing us our blind spot. It's shaking up all the cracks in our leadership foundations and bringing that darkness to the light. And we just so badly want to capitalize on that, right? I know you're with us because you see that opportunity too. But but why is it getting higher, not lower, with all the information that's out there in and around how important it is, right? Like I kind of think burnout is a sign and a symptom that your mental health is in a tailspin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. I think technology has made us more connected than ever before, but people have found themselves more isolated um, over the last two decades. Um, we've seen even with our children higher degrees of depression, anxiety, um, and so I think when you look at the way it plays out with burnout. I think there are contextual factors like COVID that have played into it. The lines have been so blurred between work and non-work. People are putting in 16, 17 hours a day. 
Um, I don't think, at least in the leaders that I work with, there is good work-life balance. And so this goes back to the mental health, someone who has bipolar mm-hmm. disorder, like I cannot live in the extreme. So there's the, I, I've built in habits into my life now where like the first two or three hours are for self-care and that's going to the gym and that's, that's prayer and meditation and journaling. And so I will make sure between five and seven or five 30 and seven 30 that I'm taking time for that. I'm not waking up and just going to my office and brewing a pot of right. coffee and working. Um, and then throughout the day, I'll, there'll be a time where I'll turn off from work. Um, and I'll say, okay, I'm going to spend time with my family or I'm going to spend time in activities or hobbies that I'm interested in. And so um, I think a lot of leaders need to try to get that balance. And the higher you go in the organization, the more the stakes are raised and the more responsibilities fall on your shoulders. Um, but I think everyone can strive for better work-life balance. And so I think that's a big piece of it. I think the other piece is, um, and we're seeing this with the great resignation, like it goes back to relational intelligence. Do you genuinely feel that your leaders care about you right. and that you're all moving towards the same direction of the vision and strategy that the organization has? Mm-hmm. And so people are more burnt out now than ever before, because I don't think they have those deep connections with their leaders. Um, we've seen particularly in our research, Gen X, uh, Gen Z and millennials, um, they're leaving jobs more, there's more so than ever before because of that. They're not getting the development from their leaders. They're not getting the connections in terms of how they can grow and mature. And they're not getting the mentoring and coaching that they need. And so I think that's another big contributor to burnout as well, is that people just don't have the time to think about their careers or think about planning. Or like you said, like we do these exercises at our offsites. It's sometimes the first time a leader has thought through or what shaped me or what is my, what does that even mean? And so I think those are a lot of the contributing factors to what's leading to burnout today. Well, it's interesting. We had um, an expert on here and he wrote an, an article um, at MIT. They're doing research in and around the great resignation. And they found like the number one driver of that, right, was toxic workplaces. And to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. toxic workplaces are the absence of everything that we're talking about yeah, today, yeah. right? It's like you yeah. don't see your people. You drive with fear. You're command and control. It's like the very antithesis of everything that Adam and I are preaching about. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, that totally lines up, right? Which also kind of makes the case for why, since they're not teaching this in business school, we all need to run out and get Adam's book ASAP. (laughs) (laughs) That's the textbook we're assigning you all today, right? right? So that you actually can close that gap first and foremost for your damn self, because that model carries the most weight, folks. That's what we say in leadership, right? Like if you aren't on solid ground, in your mental health, right? It makes it really hard for you to be able to do any of these practices that we're riffing on here today, right? In terms of the empathy and the ability to see your people, hear your people and create safe conditions for them to thrive. That's right. That's right. So I think we've really done a great job of making that case today for people to get out and get the textbook, but I want to leave space here. If there's anything else that you want to leave with us in yeah. terms of what it is that we've spoken about today. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think relational intelligence is a skill set that can transform people's lives. I've seen it transform my life in the last two decades, professionally, personally. Um, and everyone, the, the really good thing about relational intelligence, it's not like personality where it's fixed and you're stuck in a certain way. These right. are skills. This, this is a framework. These are skills you can learn put into practice and refine over time. And so 
our relationships should be ever evolving and changing and we should be evolving and changing as people, right? as, people as we grow. And mm-hmm. so what I believe relational intelligence in this book will be for your readers is a blueprint of mm-hmm. skills that on firsthand reading through, you're like, duh, I know about how to establish rapport. Okay, but do you really know how to use your energy? I'm sure we've all had the experience of walking into a room with a leader who has sucked the energy out of a room and everyone is downtrodden or sad or fearful. And we've all walked into meetings with leaders who inspire us and motivate us. And so how you use your energy, the initial times you're meeting someone can really set the foundation for a great relationship to grow. And so I talk about things like that in the book. But again, I think... um, the people who have gone through our programs who have read the book, we've seen their lives transform the people that I've coached. Um, so I would, you know, again, I think your audience would grow just in terms of who they are as people, not even just leaders um, from learning these skills and putting them into practice. Woo, mic drop. I love it. It goes back to Maslow, right? Like the hierarchy of needs folks. Like you can't get off the damn ground floor unless you develop these skills and strategies in and around EQ and relational intelligence. Cause yes, we need each other to grow as well. And that is why we're here. That's the damn point as human beings. (laughs) We are here to grow. It's the very nature of ourselves, right? We're constantly evolving and changing in our bodies. But obviously that pertains to our psychology as well. And that's why mindset, which is kind of what we're talking about here today, folks, right, is such a requisite aspect of leadership development and training. That's why we put mindset, right, like next to leadership training and call it leadership 2.0 because it really is. It's like you need to develop these skills if you're here to play your biggest impact game. And if you're listening to this show, I'm pretty sure you are. Adam, this has been so much fun. I love riffing with you. That's why we had to make the hat trick, right? Uh, (laughs) If anybody wants to come and find you or your textbook, right? We're calling it a textbook because it's requisite, folks. So (laughs) where can they find you? Where can they find the book? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Adam Bandelli. Same thing on Instagram or Twitter. Um, The book is available now. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, Walmart, Target. So it's available. And um, we are updating our brand new website, Bandelli & Associates. It'll be live in a couple of weeks. We'll have information there. What we're working on right now, Susan, is we're building our relational intelligence test. So in a few months, I'll not only be able to give you a book, but I'll be able to give you assessment and tell you what your relational intelligence is today. Um, And then I mentioned we launched earlier this year our two-day immersive relational intelligence experience. And we do it with CEOs and senior teams to really walk them through these skills and help them to start practicing and model these behaviors so they can build thriving organizations. So all that stuff will be on the new website. And so we'd love to have your listeners go there as well to learn more about relational intelligence. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to play with that test. Please let us know when it's ready and we'll make sure we drop that into um, the show and the show notes and we'll make sure that our people can find that easily. For all other requests around leadership development and training, please visit our website, EliteHighPerformance.com. And as always, if you love this show, which I'm pretty sure you did, Please share it with your audience, share it with your leaders, share it with your friends, share it with your peers. Um, We're really on a mission to change the way the game is being played forever. So we really appreciate you liking, subscribing, and sharing that with your tribes. I am going to try to pull out a Rob quote to bring us on down and land this play today. I found this one and I know you're going to love it because it's like, of course, we we talked about what we talked about. My intuition must have been 
on Fuego this morning. So the quote is, not until we are lost do we begin to understand ourselves. And that's mm-hmm. by Henry David Thoreau. Yeah, yeah. So even if you're feeling a little lost out there, I think that's the final call from Adam and I today. It's an invitation. Yeah, it's yeah. honestly, it's the game changer TSN turning point in both Adam and my story today, as you see. Um, and it can be that too. I really believe that brick walls can be launch pads, right? For our highest potential. Um, so yeah, please, please, please go find Adam's book. This has been a blast. We'll have you back for the fourth round this time. (laughs) We'll make sure we're both here to host you. That's That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Thank you everyone. And we'll see you next week.